Okay, we've been doing a kind of inadvertent series. I don't know if you've noticed, but over the past three weeks, Becky has talked about the commands of God, have no other gods. Tom has talked about the commands of God, love God and love one another. And then John last week came up with another command, which is rejoice in the Lord always. I say rejoice, the command to enjoy God. And I just thought it is a good thing to actually do another one, because hasn't it been great hearing what people have got to say about these different themes? It's been wonderful to share out the teaching like this. It's been a real benefit to us. So I thought I'd continue in this theme of the commands of God and look at another command from the Bible. And actually, this command is the reason why all the other commands exist. And it relates to the very nature of God and who he is. Can you guess what that is? (laughs) The command is to be holy as God is holy. And uh, I'm going to speak to you today from 1 Peter chapter 1, but actually Peter is quoting from uh, the law of Moses in Leviticus 19.1 when he uses these words. And this was the command, be holy as I am holy, that would be quoted by the priest before any of the other commands would have been read to the people. So let's just turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses there from verse 13 to 19. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled and set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Christ Jesus is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect." Lord Jesus, I just pray that as we talk about the holiness of God, that you would come by your presence and reveal your holiness to us. We just pray, Lord, that your awe and the fear of God would rest on us as we talk about your holiness. Lord, we welcome you here. Come amongst us. Increase your presence with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I'm going to talk about the holiness of God. And first of all, I want to talk about the problem of holiness. Because actually, I think this is the most terrible and disturbing of all the commands. You know, many have tried to water it down. It's in the New Testament. So they've tried to water it down or they've tried to explain it away. So I've heard this verse taught, for example, this isn't really about holiness. It's not really about being holy as God is holy. It's about maturity. It's about maturing in God. 
But you know, it's impossible to reconcile this because ultimately, holiness relates to the person of God who above everything is holy. In fact, every other characteristic of God only makes sense when it's put into the context of God's holiness. So, for example, without God's holiness, why would there be any need for grace? (laughs) Why would there be any need for mercy or for love, for that matter? God's holiness means that we need these other attributes of God desperately. And Jesus affirms this ancient command when he says in Matthew chapter 5, 48, a verse which makes it sound even worse. He says, we must be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. He's talking about the kind of perfection that is only found in heaven in a holy God. Thanks, Jesus. You've made it even higher. So where do we start with this? And I've got to say, I feel totally unqualified to speak on this subject because even as I've gone to write things down or try to structure a talk around the holiness of God, I found myself curling up inside, avoiding my desk and trying to think about anything else other than the holiness of God, something a lot more comfortable than the holiness of God because there's no doubt about it. There's something very uncomfortable about the holiness of God. It's not a comfortable subject because it's just so opposite to us. It's such a foreign concept. The holiness of God, it's so high, it's so far removed. I mean, what do we compare it to? What do we compare the holiness of God to? How do we even begin to understand it? It is so contrary to us. Now, there have been one or maybe two occasions in my life where I think I have really encountered the holiness of God. And it wasn't a comfortable experience. I trembled. I shook. I felt a kind of dread that I can hardly begin to describe. Only to be relieved mercifully by waves of the Father's love, which soon followed. But if that hadn't happened, I don't know what. I would have done, or what would have happened to me. In that moment, that moment of the encounter of the holiness of God, the moment of exposure was incredible. And yet there is this command to be holy as God is holy. As God is holy. It's not compared to somebody else. There might be a chance there. It's not even compared to myself and my own performance. The standard is impossible. It's God's holiness. Be holy as God is holy. So what is God's holiness? Well, let's start with a bit of a definition, shall we? And as you've probably picked up already, holiness is quite a hard thing to define or even explain because actually it's like trying to define God because God is holiness. Holiness then is God's otherworldness. It's his supreme greatness and perfection. God 
is holy. Holiness is the very essence of God. Hodge says it's his infinite moral perfection, his transcendent separateness, his consummate perfection and total glory. One other commentator just says, well, the holiness of God, it's, it, 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 it is, it's his otherness. There's just no other words for describing it. And before long, when you try to describe the holiness of God, you just run out of superlatives. And that's because there is nothing that we can compare it to. You see, with God's love, well, at least there's some kind of comparison that we can relate to. Even grace, we can illustrate and we can get a hang of it. We don't understand God's grace, but we do understand the concept of grace. Or even mercy, we understand what mercy is all about. But this otherness of God, we can't quite pin it down. And the nearest that some have come to to explaining it or describing it is to talk about, and this isn't that comforting either, is to talk about the total fear of something unknown. (laughs) The terror of God. The fear of God. And that's what it's all about. The the fear of God is about the experience of his holiness. And so I don't think I can give you an adequate explanation or definition, but I can describe to you the effect of God's holiness. The effect of God's holiness. See, throughout the Bible, God's holiness is marked by the fact that everyone who ever encountered it had the same response. Terrible fear and trembling. Overwhelming dread. So Habakkuk, for example, describes his encounter with the holiness of God like this. Habakkuk 3.16, he says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. My goodness me, that is some description. The decay creeping into my bones is particularly vivid, I think. Isaiah, in uh, chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, had a vision of the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and, and, and his train filled the temple. It's a, it's a verse and a concept that we know incredibly well. But then, did you notice Isaiah's response to the holiness of God? His first words as he saw the holiness, as it impacted his spirit and his manhood and his creatureness. The first words out of his mouth were, Woe is me! Woe! And that's a really strong word. It it literally means that he cursed himself, denying his very right to existence before such a holy God. Woe is me, he cried out, I am ruined. Or as the authorised version says, I am undone. It means broken into pieces. I'm smashed. I'm fallen apart. I'm shattered into destruction. And it's a bit like somebody describing a complete nervous breakdown. That was the impact that God's holiness had on Isaiah. 
He couldn't pull himself together. He was in pit, he was in bits and he was traumatized by the holiness of God. And so God sends one of the angels with a burning coal who takes away his guilt and atones for his sin. But you know, even the angel, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you see, even the angel Isaiah sees is unable to look upon God in that place. And Isaiah 6 verse 2 tells us about some specially equipped angels that God has created for that place around the throne of God. And and they're called seraphs. And it says that they've got six wings. And you think, well, why have they got six wings? Surely you only need two. But these seraphs, these specially equipped SAS angels, have got six wings. And the reason that these specialist angels have these six wings is that they need two to fly, yes, but it says that they need two to cover their bare feet because nothing can be exposed in God's actual presence. And then there are two other wings that cover their faces because even the angels cannot live around the throne, who live around the throne, cannot look upon his holiness. Even the angels. And in fact, all they can do is fly around the throne covering their faces, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy. That's all they can do day and night. It says that that's all they do. Such is the holiness of God. They can't even look at it, but they can't help but cry out. And then Moses... Well, he learned about the holiness of God in Exodus 33. He comes to God and he says, God, I want to see your glory. And so God replies, well, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he says, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And so it seems that in our current human state, we cannot even cope with a glance, not even a backward glance of God's face. Even the sight of the holiness of God in our raw state would completely destroy us. It would devastate us. God is holy. And you remember that Moses... He had these amazing encounters with God. You know, but when he had these encounters and encountered the glory of God, when he came down from that experience, he had to cover his face with a veil. Because even the reflected glory of God that was on his face, I don't know, like some kind of sunburn or whatever it was, even that reflected glory was too much for the people to look upon. Please, Moses, cover your face. We can't bear to look upon your face. It was just the reflection of God's glory. And so the holiness of God is impossible to define, but its devastating effect can be seen upon everyone who has ever encountered it. And is it any wonder that David 
in Psalm 24 cries out, that famous psalm, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who's not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Who can ascend to the place of God's holiness? Who can stand there? He better be very clean. (laughs) And this isn't just the Old Testament. The same pattern can be seen in the New. So Paul encountered the holiness of God, if you like. On the Damascus Road, it says that he was blinded by the glory and he was unable to eat or drink for three days. John on the Isle of Patmos, when he encountered the glory of God and the holiness of the risen Christ in the Revelation, chapter 1, verse 17, it says that he fell at his feet as though dead. I can't say that I have ever experienced the trauma of God's holiness to such an extent. Have you? You know, I've read about some people that have. So people like Charles Finney, apparently, who, who he, he carried something of the dread of the Lord from his encounters. And Jonathan Edwards, I was reading about him recently, and apparently had the, the worst preaching style in the world. It was just the most, the most monotone, boring reading of a, a sermon by candlelight you could ever hear. But as he read in this quiet, monotonous voice, the fear of God would fall upon the whole congregation and would even spread out into the streets around. People that couldn't even hear that quiet monotone would be struck down by the awesome fear and power of the presence of God in his holiness. And they would cry out and say, God, I need to get right with God. I need to get right with God. I've never experienced that. But there have been times in my life when for several hours or even days I've been unable to cope with normal life because I've encountered something of the glory of God. You know, even coming back from South Africa, I found I couldn't watch telly for a couple of weeks. I couldn't cope even with the sound of it in the next room. I couldn't cope with the sound of the radio. The news just had such a dampening effect, I couldn't bear the sound of the news. It's just unbearable. Because these things were in such a marked contrast to that place of glory, if you like, that I've been and experienced and encountered of God during that time. found it really hard to come back down to normal life. I don't think I'm fully there yet. But there have also been other times when it's been the opposite, you know, where I have been embroiled in such sin and sinful behaviour and worldly thinking. I don't know if you've ever been through a time like this, but... There were times where I just couldn't cope with going to church because I couldn't be around Christians. I just couldn't cope with it. I felt too convicted in their presence. They never said anything to me. Christians are nice people on the whole. 
Especially, I, I, there were certain men of God I had to avoid. I just couldn't cope with being around them because of the holiness of God. There was a kind of a glow <laughs> that I saw through that time that made the darkness in me tremble until God set me free. Guys, this is the stuff of revival. Where the holiness of God is preached and where the holiness of God is lived out. Where holy men and women of God learn how to carry both the presence and the holiness of God. And do you know what? This was one of the worst weeks for me to preach on this. So I'm preaching to you out of obedience, not out of a sense of superiority. But there is this command, be holy as I am holy. And I've just painted the picture of what that really means. How is it possible to obey this command? How can we get even near that? What does it mean? And so for this, I just want to take you back to uh, 1 Peter who started all this. <laughs> and I want to share with you some, some things that Peter says because first of all, he exhorts us to holiness and then he motivates us towards holiness. So firstly, Peter exhorts us to holiness. He says that we must be holy in all that we do, verse 16. Get ready, he said. Prepare your minds for action, verse 13. And that's because holiness is not just a theoretical state, but being a Christian must affect the way that we live and the work that we do. I paraphrase, but he tracks out progress in Christ, saying, you are no longer ignorant about the world and what it offers, verse 14. He says, you're no longer ignorant, you know what it's about. So don't conform yourself or mould yourself around the world and its standards. Peter says, we're strangers here, verse 17. We're citizens of heaven. So don't start getting embroiled or so at home down here, so inextinguishable from the world that your life makes no difference because you have a higher obligation Church, we're meant to be salt. We're meant to be light. We're meant to be distinguished as heavenly citizens in the world today. Don't get so involved, embroiled in the world. Do you hear the exhortations? Know who we are. Know the world in which we live. See it for what it is and know what God has done. Be holy. That's how Peter exhorts us. Secondly, Peter gives us three facts that must motivate us to holiness. Number one, the first fact is this. Jesus is coming again. Jesus is coming again. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Stay ready. Be self-controlled. That is, be seriously minded about this. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Jesus is coming again. And do you know, I don't think we talk about this enough. You know, there's so much confusion about the second coming. Do you know, sometimes I wonder if the great tribulation is the doctrines that have been teached about the second coming. 
but there's so much confusion about it. There's so much tiptoeing around. I don't know if I'm pre-trib, post-trib, trib-trib, or whatever trib, that we just don't talk about it anymore, and it's wrong. Jesus is coming again soon. Do you know what he said to us? He said, and you're not going to be able to work out when it's going to happen. Yeah. (laughs) Post-trip, pre-trip, trip-trip. We just don't know. But he is coming again. Let me say it again. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming for a holy people and a victorious bride. But there's still a lot of work to be done. You know, before he comes, Jesus says, I want you to preach the gospel to every creature. He says, I want you to heal the sick and to cast out demons and announce the good news of the kingdom. That's what we're meant to be doing until Jesus comes again. But this motivation isn't actually so much about Jesus is coming so look busy, as one bumper sticker says, It's essentially about the reward that Jesus is bringing with him upon his return. You see, it says this in Revelation 22, 12. It says, look, Jesus says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon and my reward is with me and I will give each person according to what they have done. This isn't about punishment, by the way. I'm going to give you a right going over it. This is according to what you've done. I've got a reward that I want to give you for what you've done. Are you motivated by reward? Well, I don't know when it comes to God. Sometimes. Are you motivated by reward? Yes, I am. I love it when people encourage me. Do you? I love it when I get praised by my wife because I cleaned the windows this morning and I did a really good job and I felt really good about it because she praised me. I feel good about it when I get a bonus from my boss or a refund from the local authority that I didn't expect. Yes, I'm motivated by reward and so are you. We are motivated by reward. The parable of talents talks about this. And it's in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, if you want to read it. But it's very well known, so I won't turn to it. But here's the motivator in a nutshell. To those that have invested well, more will be given. That's the motivator. To those that have invested well, more will be given. But to those who've done nothing with what they've got, even the little they have will be taken from them. And this isn't to do with salvation. This is, that's secure. But it's what have you done with the gifts that God has given to you? The life that you've got is a gift. What about the gifts that God has given to you? What have you done with those gifts? What will you say to him about the reasons that you've not used those gifts when you stand before his holiness? Now, bearing in mind what we've said about the holiness of God, it's going to be quite difficult to explain, well, actually, Lord, I've been a bit afraid, or actually, um, it's just I've been really busy recently. Or actually, I'm not that confident a person. It sounds a bit weak when you stand before 
the presence of a holy God and say, God, this is why I didn't use my talents. You know, some people think, that, oh, when I get there before the big man, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. No, you won't. No, you won't. There's such a fear and an awe about the holiness of God. You won't be able to say a word. You'll be devastated. Can you see what I mean about the fear of the holiness of God and how that might motivate you? But even this is primarily a promise of incredible reward to those who have invested and grown and even the little that God has given them. Jesus will pour out his favour and multiply blessing. It's bonus time when Jesus comes again. Praise God. Look, Jesus is coming again. Just thought I'd say it again. I've said it now five times in one sermon to make up for the times I haven't. And genuinely, I felt convicted about that. Jesus is coming again. And it must motivate us. It must inspire us. And if it slipped out of our consciousness, let it reawaken you today. Let this expectation motivate us to holiness. What would you like Jesus to find you doing when he comes? Sobering, sobering stuff. The second motivation that Peter gives us is uh, the Father's future judgment of our work. There is a fear and an awe about the holiness of God. We can't avoid that, and I can't make it any easier for you. So we're going to talk about the judgment of the Father now. (laughs) So here we go. Verse 17. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in the world in reverent fear. I mean, did you know that Christians will also be judged? You know, Paul tells us, he says, that we must all appear, all, everybody, nobody gets excluded. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. And this, according to Peter here, is to judge the nature and quality of our work. Now, I have some experience with this with my wife. You know, soon after we got married... I did my first decorating escapade. And it was in the days of borders. Do you remember borders? Borders, they're just like hell to try and get them absolutely right. But I thought, no, I've got this really worked out now. I'm not the most practical person, you know this. But I thought, I'm going to get this right. Newly married, new house, really want to make a good impression. First big job. She came in and she said, it's not level. I'd spent hours on it. What I'd done is gone round with the tape measure and I'd measured every couple of feet and got it just in the right place, along same measurement all the way around. But of course, what I didn't realise is that the floor wasn't level, was it? So when she came out with her little measuring thing and she proved to me that it was actually about two or three millimetres out. Now, I don't think that it's going to be like that when God comes, but you never know. But this, the knowledge, (laughs) I just thought I'd lighten the moment, guys. Uh, 
but the knowledge of the Father's judgment should make our attitude to the work of the kingdom one of reverent fear. The Father will judge it. He cares about what we do. You know, he is interested in your life and how it affects the lives of those around you. But look, I'm so glad that it's our Father doing the judging. Did you notice that little word slipped in? It's our Father that's going to do the judging. You see, holy is what God is in himself, as one commentator points out. But Father is what God is in relation to us. He's our Father. But he's still a father who judges our work. He wants to check for its quality. He wants to make sure that it's an authentic work of his grace. And not everyone will pass the test. Jesus tells us in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46 that some who have called him Lord, so claiming to be Christians, even healing the sick, casting out demons in his name, and done all kinds of things, that the Father will turn to some of those people on that day and say, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Isn't that dreadful? Isn't that an awful thought? Reverent fear. My granddad was a Baptist minister, but he was an amazing man of God. I didn't mean to say it like that, actually. He was a Baptist minister who was an amazing man of God. Not the but in the middle, forget that but. Can you edit that for me later? Um, He was an amazing man of God, and he uh, saw lots and lots of people saved. He would preach the gospel, and the fear of God would fall on people, and they would get saved. I remember once I was there when he was preaching on hell. And he was preaching on hell. And he was a hellfire and brimstone preacher, so he got the secretary, church secretary, to turn the heating up really hot that night. Because he said, I'm going to preach on hell like this. He was an amazing, amazing guy. So imagine my shock when in his last years... He came to a place of incredible fear that he'd not done enough, that his work wouldn't pass the test. And I just thought, oh no, come on, you need the grace of God, once saved, always saved, you've got nothing to worry about. And it's only looking back that I now begin to understand something of that reverent fear that he had. Are we concerned enough about the work of God? It's not time to go into this in any depth now, but I think that this is essentially about a deep relational connection to the Father. And Jesus modelled it for us. Jesus said, I don't do anything by myself or for myself or by myself or of myself. I only do what I see the Father doing. You see, it was out of that relationship with the Father that Jesus worked. I never knew you means you didn't do this for me. You did it for you. You had no relationship with the Father, but you tried to gain salvation through your works. 
You thought you might impress God when you got there by all the work that you've done. Where was my glory in that? The Father says. Where was my glory in that? I've chosen weak people. I've chosen people that can't do anything but, God, if you don't turn up, I don't know what's going to happen here. I've chosen people that are connected to the vine, connected to that relationship. Depart from me. We're strangers here, Peter says. Don't don't use worldly thinking in building the kingdom. Be afraid of that. Walk lightly around such things. Our Father will test the work we've done, and reverent fear is entirely appropriate to the work of the kingdom. Now, Peter's third motivation in this motivation is also found the solution to the problem of God's holiness. Finally, the gospel appears. And Peter asks us to consider, in point three here, the cost of our salvation. Verses 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, without uh, blood of Christ, a Lamb without blemish or defect. And so Peter sets out the holiness of God, the standards of God, the reward that Jesus is bringing, the judgment of the Father, but in the end he brings us to Jesus. I don't think there's anything like the holiness of God that brings us to Jesus than anything else. It it just brings us to that place. Jesus is the precious Lamb. He is the perfect sacrifice, a lamb without blemish or defect. I mean, aren't you so relieved that Jesus turned up? But what must it have cost him? You know, a holy God who had no sin to become sin for us. Can you imagine what that means? And in the light of what we've learned today about the holiness of God, he had no sin to become sin for us. It was so foreign to him. It was so removed from him. Not only that, but it was so in exchange, we would become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 21. That's what Paul tells us. And here's where the good news comes in. We are commanded to be holy as God is holy, but this is made possible by the exchange that Jesus has made for us in taking our sin. You know, you can't get to be holy in your own strength or by your own efforts. Hebrews 10.10 tells us that it's through the sacrifice of Jesus that we have been made holy. Through his sacrifice, we have been made holy. Hebrews 2.11 tells us that it's by, it is Jesus, it's his responsibility. It's him who makes us holy through his sacrifice and by his work. And in another place we're told that it's the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, to sanctify us and make us progressively clean. And the promise is that if we walk in step with the Holy Spirit, we won't sin and do what our flesh desires. Galatians 5.16 This is good news, isn't it? This is the preciousness of his blood that not only are we able to be saved, but also to be made holy like God is holy. Isn't that amazing? 
I mean, so does this mean then that we don't need to worry about our own personal holiness? Does this mean it's all laid on, it's all been done? Does this make Peter's command irrelevant? That you and I have no responsibility to live a holy life? No, because God still commands us to be holy. Jesus is still coming again, and the Father is still going to judge our work, and then there is the considerable cost that Jesus paid for our salvation. No, God really does want us to be motivated towards holiness and to live holy lives. And then, having established these things, Peter starts chapter 2 with these words. Having established the standards of God, the holiness of God, he says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you've tasted the Lord is good. There's a responsibility for us, not only to recognize the holiness of God, but also to rid ourselves of that which is contrary to that holiness. We need to be holy as God is holy in all that we do. So let me conclude then. God wants us to be holy. This is a current command, but it's impossible for us to obey. The holiness of God is so far removed from who we are and where we are because it's the very essence of God. But the good news is that through the cross, Jesus has done all that is necessary to make it possible for us to be holy, but we still must act on this truth and exercise self-control so that our lives and the outcome of our lives is holy. And you know, we've still got a lot of work to do here. The work of the kingdom that God himself has gifted each one of us to do. And Jesus will reward us for the work when he returns. But he can only reward those that have invested their gift in his kingdom. And the work that Jesus has left us to do will one day be judged by the Father. Not all who say, Lord, Lord, or perform miracles in his name will stand before this holy scrutiny because the Father's looking for those that are intimately connected with him, those that know him and are dependent upon him. And so we must live our lives in reverent fear, because our God is holy.